Blog Talk Radio. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Tell me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Cancer Show. That's hot. Hello there. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Zachary. Monday, April 12th, and welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show. The voice of young adults with cancer. Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Well, get busy living because the Stupid Cancer Show is here to change the world one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show, Health Care Reform, and our Survivor Spotlight, Ava Grazel, oral cancer survivor, performing artist, and motivational speaker. And in our primary segment, Dr. Robert T. Croyle, Ph.D., Director of the Division of Cancer Control and Population Science at the National Cancer Institute and... Melinda Henneberger, young adult survivor, breast cancer editor-in-chief of politicsdaily.com. Wow. All righty, as a reminder, this broadcast is a program of the I Am Too Young for This Cancer Foundation, one of the nation's leading grassroots advocates for the nearly five million young adults and co-survivors affected by stupid cancer. On the web at i2y.com. We're bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight and sticking it to a system that's ignored us for far too long. Why? Because survival rates and quality of life in young adults have not improved very much in 30 years, because remission is no excuse for cure, and because survivorship is all that matters. So hello, my friends, and welcome to yet another fun-full and exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show. And a stupid cancer welcome to all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, coming at you live... From the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan, I'm your host, one of your hosts, Matthew Zachary, a 14-year young adult pediatric brain cancer survivor. And of course, please welcome my official partner in crime here on the radio show tonight, hailing right here from New York City, fellow 14-year young adult breast cancer survivor, acclaimed journalist, former deputy editor of TV Guide, and former entertainment news correspondent for the Fox News Channel. The lovely and talented Lisa Bernhard. Matthew, Matthew, how are you? Bernhard. <laughs> Bernhard. You got the age. Yes. I gave you lots of abuse last week yes, for missing yes. the age. Well, I, I, you're, I will concede I missed the age. Wow. Thanks. I missed the age. But you got it now. Yes, I did. So anyway, joining uh, Lisa and I, as always, our chief cancer anarchist, Jack Buffard. What's up, dude? Hello, bro. Hi, Lisa. <laughs> Hi, Jack. So much afraid you're going to include me in the dude-dom. Ugh, never. 
<laughs> well, anyway, for those of you out there, we have a live, concurrent, interactive chat room that runs simultaneously with the show. If uh, you happen to be in that chat room and have questions for our guests or issues with the show, just uh, take it up with Jack. There's a chance he might listen. And, of course, as always, joining us tonight, our fabulous broadcast production assistant, young adult survivor Amanda Freeman. Welcome back, Amanda. Hi. I thought uh, you forgot about me for a moment. No, no. You're, you're well, you, you lost the bet because now Jack's not last anymore. Oh, <laughs> is that how it works? It was Yahtzee. How do I get back on top? Um, Yahtzee. <laughs> you have to challenge Jack the game of Yahtzee. Yeah. Best for last. Last is a good place to be. I suppose. Yep. Well, I originally had you last, Lisa, but I figured you deserve to be first. Well, I'm second. Well, behind Matthew. Right. Well, yes. uh, in theory. Anyway, we well, have. Well, you can count us. We we bookend. How about how about this? We we sandwich Jack. We bookend Jack. We, well, in a sense, if the two bookends are on one side of the book. And the book is, there is there any Dr. content? Is or is it blank pages? It's a, it's a Dr. Seuss book. It's, it's yeah. a Mad Lib. <laughs> anyway, we have two very special guests in studio with us tonight. Um, I2Y is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and every nonprofit organization has a board of directors. And every board of directors has a chairman of the board of directors, and we are fortunate enough to have here with us tonight the chairman of the board of directors of the I Am Too Young for This Cancer Foundation, no stranger to the stupid cancer show, the one and only Dr. Leonard Sender. Hello, Lenny. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show tonight. Looks like you've got a great lineup tonight. Even though you're here? Yes, we do. And excuse the accent. I'm trying to sound like a New Yorker. <laughs> South African. And he's the chairman of the board, and we don't even have a chair for him in front of the mic. Right. <laughs> he's crouching in <laughs> he's front of the mic. squatting in front of the mic, getting a workout in his quads. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, he's the tallest person in the room. And what? Probably the... So the microphone's at a lower level oh. for Amanda and Lisa. Fancy, 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 schmancy. He was in a good catcher's position. <laughs> I don't even want to go there. I thought the chairman I, of the board was a pitcher. Was, we it, had a, was it Whitey Ford a pitcher? No, Frank Sinatra was chairman of the board. I know, but for the Yankees, Whitey Ford was the chairman of the board. Chairman got, of the board, Whitey Ford? Yes. We've uh, got a Mets that's a game sport, on that. right? Yeah, we do have a Mets game. It's actually the uh, Game 6 of the ALCS from 1986. That's fantastic. Game uh, 6. What? I'm actually reliving 6th grade right now watching this game. One of the yeah. few bright spots of the Mets uh, baseball history. That's Wait, true. who's Rabbi Stupid Cancer? Oh, that's Yosef. you got to queue up his music. Oh, Yosef Eliezeri is in the chat room. We have our, we're obligated to cue to Yosef's theme song. <laughs> Why is, the, why, is, why is Lenny dancing right now? <laughs> Dude, you just stepped on my glass. Put the chair down. <laughs> anyway, joining Lenny tonight is his daughter, Hannah Sender, who is uh, currently a, what are you, a junior? She's a sophomore at the new school uh, here in New York City, and she's, uh, what are you doing at, at school? Media studies. Media studies. So clearly not taking after her father. He's very disappointed, and she has to leave the room now. <laughs> Anyway, well, this is a stupid cancer show, so this is cancer and media, so I think she can stay. Okay, we'll allow you just this one. We, we cannot give you practicum credit or reimburse your metric card. <laughs> but did we give her some Chinese food? Yeah, I think she can. You can eat all the food you want. Yeah. The food nice. is free. We had a little Chinese food before the show. We're, ha we're happy to, to spread the love. Yes. Or the cheap Chinese food. Cheap. Or both. Decent. Matt, can I call you out on something? Oh, boy. What? Do you know what yesterday was? Um, April 11th. April 11th is a Sunday. Yes. 
Right. April 11th is the two-year anniversary of when you and I first met at OMG 2008. Oh. OMG, oh, it was April 11th? Yeah. Really? Yep. It's your anniversary, guys. Did you just make that up? No, it was April 11th. Are you serious? 2008. That's it's, the it's day our, that you and I met. It's our bromance anniversary. Sure. I think you might not recognize me because I was fat and bald back then, and I had my mom with me. <laughs> you did. <laughs> I see a weekend escape to the beautiful Mount Airy Lodge in the Catskills for the two of you. Yeah, we could get the champagne, the glass, champagne hot tub thing. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the heart-shaped bed. Oh, and maybe goodness. when we come back, the twins will be here. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, we're losing listeners. So anyway, happy anniversary. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't get you a card. But uh, I did Skype with you yesterday. Did the, do we need a bromance anniversary card in the Hallmark store? I think we just invented something. How about just like a fist pound across the studio? Okay, boom. All right. That Happy anniversary, bro. No oh, man. Oh. <laughs> this, the chat room is celebrating our bromance anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't count as like cheating on Johnny Emmerman, does it? No. <laughs> and Johnny's got Johnny went public with his girlfriend, so kudos to Johnny Emmerman. He did. Wow. Upsetting millions of young women around the world. Must be nice. Especially, especially, well, you were on this wall, too. Even you were crushed, Amanda. Yes. Fantastic. So, so, so everybody was crushed. Yes. All communities were crushed. All, all <laughs> sexual orientation communities were Across crushed. Across the board. Yes. Regardless. Yep. So, uh, we're, 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 we're shipped, uh, I can't even speak. We're shifting around the format for tonight's show, folks. We're going to be doing the, um, the Survivor Spotlight earlier in the show so we can get to the news and the topics of the day and then bring in our two guests uh, later on. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's move that along here. What time is it? 9.10. All righty. In our spotlight tonight, Ava Grizel. And if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, I apologize profusely. A nationally recognized motivational speaker and performing artist crafts stories into spontaneously interactive theater pieces, emphasizing life lessons. After an astonishing recovery from stage four oral cancer, she expanded her work, speaking about her journey, delayed diagnosis, extensive surgery, radiation, and miraculous recovery. She developed an oral cancer awareness campaign called the Six Step Screening, which we're going to hear about tonight. In addition, she authored the book, You Are Not Alone, Families Touched by Cancer, a book on coping, communicating, and cherishing special moments. Please welcome to this stupid cancer show, Ava Grizel. Ava. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Ava. Hi there. So did I, hey, did I destroy so your name you or is that right? So you live in the one city in the United States, the one state that requires their dentist to take a, a continuing education course on early detection of oral cancer. Nothing regular, just one. I, I knew there was no a other state. In it, can you believe that no other state in this country requires dentists to take any kind of education in early detection of oral I'm, cancer? I'm glad That's I moved back to Hoboken. So they take, they take one course, you said? New York State just required their dentists to take one course, an update course, nothing regular. So my dentist in Pennsylvania did not know what they were looking at, and I was stage four. How wow. old were you? I was 31. Wow. So, we, so describe what they were looking at that they did not know. They were looking at an ulcer, a canker sore a canker sore that would not heal anything on your body, anywhere. 
should heal within two weeks. Otherwise, it's abnormal, especially in the mouth. And how long had you had this canker sore-looking growth? Nine months. Nine months. Nine months. They told me I was biting my tongue. They told me my molars were sharp. They told me to rinse with salt water. And the worst of it was they said to me, if it doesn't get better, come back. In other words, they were asking me to self-diagnose myself. Yeah, that you had to be a watchdog. I I thought it was getting better. I thought it wasn't as red, it didn't hurt as much, sure. but I was living with it every day. And when you live with something like that every day, the the changes are very subtle. Ava, I'll share with you that I'm, I, I'm a delayed diagnosis brain cancer survivor, and my doctors gave me Robitussin. So <laughs> I can commiserate with, with you on, on multi, multiple levels here about mm-hmm. the nature of delayed diagnosis in the young adult mm-hmm. cancer population. Where were you uh, living at the time? Where were you treated at? I live in Easton, Pennsylvania. Oh, that's not too far away. Not at all. I was treated finally. I went into New York for some treatment. Uh, they, they looked at me and knew right away. In fact, I took the bus into New York that day, not having an inkling that what was on my tongue was remotely serious. Nobody ever mentioned oral cancer as a possibility. So this was on your tongue. Did you have any other symptoms other than this growth? Nope. And it at was that painful. It was painful. Sure. Yeah. And so your dentist still at that point thought that it was some sort of canker sore, that it was benign. Did you then take it upon yourself? How did you did you find a doctor yourself in New York and just decided I've had enough after nine months well, and I need let to get me another opinion? By saying that I two years prior I had the sore and it was removed and the biopsy went to a general pathologist who missed the atypical cells. So I had no obvious symptoms, but early-stage oral cancer is often asymptomatic, so you don't feel it. You can only notice a change in the skin. So how do you know, excuse me, how do you know that atypical cells were missed from that first diagnosis, from that first pathology? Because when I finally was diagnosed at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, they asked for the initial biopsy. And And they went back and looked at, yeah, go ahead. They, they said, look. This, this tissue isn't even gray, it's black and white, and I should have been flagged. Wow. Now, have they given you any causes as to this? I know, and actually Dr. Sender was mentioning to us earlier before the show that perhaps there's a link with the HPV virus. Did they give you any sort of explanation as to how this may have happened, how you may have um, gotten this oral cancer? <laughs> HPV seems to be a causative these days. When uh, the cancer is on the lateral tongue, it's unlikely that it's HPV-related. Most HPV cancer is in the tonsils or the base of tongue. How many people ever asked you if you smoked? A uh, lot, but I've get... never smoked in my life. No, and of I've course. Never we, we figured most. Yeah. I mean, what about chaw? Who? Wacky tobacco. No, please. No That's a joke. I know. I know. And I also didn't. am really a very an occasional drinker. I drink wine. Don't even drink heavy liquor. We we, we won't hold that against you. Don't worry. <laughs> but just so you know, mouthwashes that contain alcohol can be can be a problem. Yeah, I use Toms. That, I live and breathe on Toms. So thank you, it. whoever Tom is. Besides the guy that is all, your automatic friend on my high alcohol content. Right. So nothing, nothing that could link this 
to any anything environmental or anything in terms of your diet. There's no doctors ever given well, you really any. Well, that's what any... they say. And for me, they thought it was environmental. In in what sort and of I've way? And I tested negative for HPV on several occasions. However, that initial biopsy was not tested because nobody will pay for it to be tested. So how did they suggest it could be environmental? Uh, my doctor felt it could be any number of things that were environmental. He said it could have been something I got as a child, <clears throat> a virus I picked up as a child. Right. So what are what are acute side effects of oral cancer? I have a friend who had tongue cancer and another friend who had um, uh, esophageal cancer. It's it's kind of all up. Is is it all considered the same area? It's oropharyngeal cancer. You're right, you're right. The bottom line is early detection. That's the bottom line. You need to be going to a dentist that knows about early detection. In other words, if they carry any of the screening devices in the office, Visalite, Velscope, Oral CDX brush test, any of those products suggest that the office is one that has updated information. It's good to ask, the when you make the appointment, to ask which hygienist has had the most current education in early detection. Ironically, my dentist did an oral cancer screening they just didn't know what they were looking at. And when I found out that my cancer was missed, most probably because my dentist did not have current information, how could I ethically allow the same thing to happen to somebody else? When I got a second chance at life, I started an oral cancer awareness campaign called the Sex Tet Six-Step Screening. And a oral cancer screening includes pulling the tongue out with a gauze, checking the floor of the mouth, the roof of the mouth, the back of the throat, palpating the neck, and feeling in the grooves of the mouth for any irregularities. Do you get that, Matthew? Uh, I think that, you know, my concerns are always that, you know, early detection, we have Fran Drescher on the show quite frequently, and, and I, I'm a big fan of hers and vice versa, but she, I think she coined a phrase that, that 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 it resonates with me and resonates a lot with our, our listenership, which is that stage one is the cure. And in that sense, you're right, early detection. However, the barriers to early detection, especially when you're younger, are one of the key messages of the young adult movement. We are most likely to get diagnosed at a late stage because of X, Y, and Z. So uh, I want to just uh, talk a little bit more about the six-step screening and, and about your book because we do have a short segment here. So uh, t tell us about the book. <clears throat> when I survived 10 years, I decided to mark the occasion by writing a book that my children would have greatly appreciated. My children were severely traumatized by watching me suffer through the effects of radiation. And this book is about coping and communication skills. And you can learn about it on the website talkforhope.com. You can use the number four or spell it out. Well, that was that's a good way to avoid people. <laughs> that just saved me a lot of pressure of spelling four the correct way. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you do some motivational speaking. What what types of topics do you talk about, or is it uh, about the book? Well, I lecture internationally about my survival story because my my recovery is miraculous. The fact that I'm articulate even though I've had a third of my tongue reconstructed, 
that I've got mobility in my neck despite the fact I've had a radical neck dissection and, and the big muscle, one big muscle in the neck was removed. So it's, it's miraculous, and I feel that it's my obligation to tell my story because every time I tell it, I save lives. So at very least, if somebody goes to the dentist, you must ask and you must demand that you have that this check that the tongue's lifted up. I mean, I've had it done at the dentist, too, and I know they just basically feel the inside of your mouth, as you said, feel your throat as well, correct? That's right. And the more people that ask their dentists for a screening, the more the dentist would say, hey, let me take a little continuing education next time I go to a conference. And even though they don't need to take, you said it's just a course and doesn't need to be, I mean, obviously there's... Correct. It's not required, so most dentists take courses that make money, whitening and brightening, implants, cosmetic. Sure. Sure. And all that stuff. But but obviously there's changes and advances in oral cancers, and if you take one course, hopefully your dentist checks in a few years later and it's updated and there's something else for them to take, even though at this point, as you said, New York State is the only state that requires this. They've required one course, so it is not regular. Right, right. And this was, and, and talk again about, because we have some questions coming in the chat room where people specifically wanted to know. Obviously, you said you had a good portion of your tongue removed. Swallowing, speech, all those things were obviously implicated in. That's right. My uh, tongue was, that third of my tongue was reconstructed. So I don't feel it and I don't taste there but it allows me to swallow normally. And because they left the tip of my tongue, it enables me to articulate my speech. Wow. Well, you sound better than I do, so <laughs> you know, kudos to you. It's amazing. You think, you, 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 know, you think of the obvious things like breast reconstruction and the other ways in which cancer affects parts of the body that plastic surgery can come in and repair. And I, and I think probably a lot of folks wouldn't think that it's, it's a, pretty miraculous thing that obviously you had a plastic surgeon come in and repair your tongue to which your your speech sounds perfect. I am one of the lucky ones, really. Well, congratulations. Thank you. So you can learn more about me at evagrazel.com. G-R-A-Y, like the color gray, like the color of my hair, Z-E-L. <laughs> well, we won't hold that against you either. I'm, 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 my, I'm starting out. I have no hair, so I... Just jealous of people that have hair of any color. Matt's Matt's taking the uh, gray marker to a scalp now. (laughs) And Jack uses Grecian formula. Yes. Yeah. Actually, Jack Jack dyes his hair with Tom's mouthwash. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) And as it runs down my face, I catch it in my mouth, and I'm saving time that way. Fantastic. Well, Eva, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, If you're ever in New York, look us up. We'd love to have lunch with you. Thanks, Eva. And folks out there, tell your dentist. Yes. Are there any questions you'd like me to address? I'm sorry? Any questions you'd like me to address? We're out of time, so we have to cut Ah. this, and we really thank you for your being on the show. You bet. Thanks a lot. Take Take care. care. We'll have you back. We'll have you back. Eva Grazel, everybody. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Just another example of a patient being their own advocate and asking their doctors to do the proper screening. Exactly. Exactly. Very important. So we have a few minutes here to talk about some of the news. Um, I know I want to get, get get Jack just to read his bit here, so I'm not, I'm not going to queue up the the stuff. So just uh, read through your stuff, and I we we want to. How talk do I about know this. when to talk if I don't have my music? Going. All right, fine, I'll yeah. play it. Matt, for you. you're asking too much. Uh, it's just too much <laughs> stuff. I, um, okay. Why am I getting the get short end of the show? Now. Oh my God! All right. Oh boy. 
Okay. Okay, during this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we announce worthy news stories. We hope that Jack will successfully stammer through a series of special announcements to let our listeners know about a whole bunch of free stuff that we don't want young adult survivors missing, like conferences, happy hours, retreats, scholarships, support groups, conferences, retreats, scholarships, reports. I said that already. All right. If you have something you'd like to hear read on this part of the show to let our listeners know about it, please send an email to Jack Lepard. His email is jack at i2y.com. All right, bro. Keep it quick. Thank you, Matthew. Here we are with your Stupid Cancer News. Start by heading over to events.i2y.com. Events.i2y.com is your one-stop shop for all stupid cancer events happening nationwide. Stay in the loop because something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we wouldn't want you missing out on it, especially if I'm not going to be there. Surviving Idol is an upcoming talent show for young adults affected by cancer. Show off your talent by entering your submission at survivingidol.com. Being that I lack both the time and the intelligence to share with you all the great stuff we have going on for young adults, I've created the Boof News blog. Everyone needs to check out boofnews.i2y.com. That's B-O-O-F.i2y.com. It is the official list of all stupid cancer news resources. These include surveys, exercise programs, writing workshops, peer services, and fertility resources. After that, head on over to 70k.org. That's the word 70, the letter K.org. There are approximately 70,000 people aged 15 to 39 diagnosed with cancer every year. For over two decades, there has been little or no improvement in survival for this age group. By signing this bill, you are supporting the Adolescent and Young Adult Cancer Bill of Rights to be established as a standard for care to meet this underserved population. And finally, I want to let everybody know, uh, special shout out to Can't Make a Dream. They are putting on their Young Adult Survivors Conference and their Young Adult Conference. The Survivors Conference is June 8th through the 13th, and the, and the Adult Conference is June 16th through the 23rd. And I spoke to their Executive Director, Stu Kaplan, the other day, and they still have some slots available. It's completely free, and you can get more information by heading over to campdream.org. And that, my friends, is your Stupid Cancer News. All right, so let's, let's, let's take five minutes here to talk about two specific things. One is real quick, which is that the OMG Cancer Summit being held in New York on May 23rd has had 311 people res, uh, register. On its way to being sold out. On its way to being sold out of 400. So if you are a young adult affected by cancer, a nurse practitioner, uh, if you have somebody in your family and you are just looking to get Good information, a great social networking event with three to 400 of your peers and a great weekend in New York City. Get your ass over to omg2010.org. And as Matt and Jack can attest, it's a great place to start a bromance. It is a great place. You just never know who you're going to meet at the OMG conference. You never two know. Years, two years strong and going. What happens at OMG stays nowhere near OMG. <laughs> and this year I won't be bringing my mom. No. No, but we are having an incredible roundup of, of the top nation's top experts in adolescent young adult oncology and advocates like Tamika Felder, Brad Ludden from First Sense, Johnny Immerman. Uh, I'll be there. Jack will be there. Um, we'll I have Carol Rosenthal. Lisa's going to be on a boat somewhere. <laughs> You're on a boat! She's on a boat! <laughs> With her flippy floppies. Yeah. And, and... Folks can meet Dr. Leonard Sender in the flesh. Yes. Who? Dr. Chairman Leonard Sender. Chairman of the board. Did you notice how I stammered through the 70K 
promo. Yeah. You know why? Yeah, nervous. I was really nervous because <laughs> I had Lenny breathing down my neck. <laughs> no, he's actually just being very kind and smiley and sipping water. Oh, he'll no. get me later. Well, yeah. here's something I want to talk about before we bring on Dr. Crow, which is something I'm going to actually ask him about, which is this, uh, in case you didn't notice this, folks, Kentucky Fried Chicken, our friends there, not, and not Kentucky Grilled Chicken, Kentucky Fried Chicken, has partnered <laughs> with our, of the two, right? Yeah, which has partnered with our friends at the Susan G. Komen for the Cure Foundation to raise money for breast cancer by eating fatty chicken fat parts, <laughs> fatty fried fat chicken fat. I'm but, hungry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just will let you guys decide. Um, Kathy Bowetti's in the chat. She sure is. Oh, my goodness. Hello, Kathy Bowetti in the chat room. All right, so I'll let you guys talk amongst yourselves for 11 seconds. How retarded is this? Okay, well, I'm just really excited that when I go get my two buckets of chicken for breakfast tomorrow morning, that a dollar of my money is going to <laughs> help fight breast cancer. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So it's a dollar a bucket? No, it's 50 cents, but I get two oh, buckets get two for buckets. breakfast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you get two buckets. You're giving a dollar. So here's the scoop. No. Okay, go ahead, Jack. 50 cents of each bucket is going to Coleman. Their goal is to raise $8.5 million this way. So that means that 17 million buckets of chicken have to be sold to generate an $8.5 million donation. So how much money is KFC getting? Like, I, I honestly, I joke about it, but I don't well, know how much, much is a bucket, a bucket? Of, I don't know. I really five don't bucks. know. Let's say it's five bucks. I can tell you the price of a Big Mac, but I can't tell you the <laughs> price of a bucket of chicken. All right. But let's say it's like, you know, eight bucks. For a bucket of chicken? So eight bucks times, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just speculating. I don't think it, The no. college we're, student just chimed in with the, yeah. Okay, you know, obviously more to the point, how many people are we killing with 17 million buckets of chicken. How yeah. many people are going to get breast cancer from their buckets of chicken? That's, right. <laughs> well, that's now isn't as KFC as a chain, aren't they now required to print their calories? Their yes, caloric they are. Count? That doesn't stop people. It, does. it certainly doesn't. But it, no, but it doesn't it's, stop it's, it's also supposed it didn't stop to stop me the day before the marathon. But now we're supposed to be into preventive care and staying healthy is also part of our new health care right. plan, so it should stop people. Well, we'll see what Dr. Krell says, but uh, at the end of the day. I, I could not help but unfortunately have to give some negative press <laughs> to this well, the first, cause marketing. Obviously, the first thing, if you breast cancer, one of the first things the doctor says is don't eat fatty foods. Right, right, right. Oh, we got a price here in the chat room, eight ninety nine for an eight-piece chicken bucket. I was so, close. So nine bucks times how many million? Seventeen million. Buckets? Yes. Would generate eight, an, eight, million. an eight and a half million dollars. So they'd have to sell 17 million buckets at nine bucks each. Right, to help Cohen make eight and a half. Now million I have dollars. a question: Is was the bucket eight forty nine before today? And then they, and they raised, they the, raised price. the price fifty cents. <laughs> oh my God! So here's what I'm going to do, Matt. Yes. Instead of running out and getting a bucket of chicken that's going to make me fat and give me cancer yes. to generate a fifty cent donation, right? I'm just going to give I two Y fifty cents and cook a meal at home. Yeah, you're not giving us 50 cents. In fact, you're going to ask me for 50 cents later. Okay, I might have lied twice there because what I don't cook at home. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other conversation for later in the day with Jack Skyping me yesterday, d throwing stuff out of his fridge that expired when Truman was president. <laughs> you know, it's easy for the colonel. He lived to a ripe old age. Yeah, that's you know? true. And then, then he's gone and he expects the rest of us to carry on. And Do you think Ronald McDonald will have anything to say about this as he's on his way out? He doesn't age. 
No, but he's there's there's a movement to ban Ronald McDonald because yeah. he's a recognizable face of bad eating habits, and our children can't be subjected to that. I'm all for that, but I want to get to yeah. Dr. Croyle because I, I'm sure he's been enjoying listening. I'm going to go get a show. bucket of chicken during this interview. All right, all right. Let's go introduce him now, and uh, we'll make this work. Is this our bromance song. This is our bromance song. All right, Dr. Robert Croyle is a social psychologist and director of the Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences at the National Cancer Institute. The division includes large programs in behavioral science, health services and outcomes research, tobacco control, health communications, diet and physical activity, research dissemination and implementation, surveillance, personal susceptibility to cancer, and cancer survivorship. His own research has focused on how individuals interpret and respond to chronic disease risk information, such as calories on the Kentucky Fried Chicken menu, including genetic test results. He is the co-author of Making Data Talk, published in 2009. Please welcome Dr. Robert Croyle. Dr. Croyle, are you with us? Hi, Matthew. Hi, Lisa. Good to join you. Hi. Great been, to have you. I hope we haven't offended... The, that you know, we're we're a partially serious show when we talk about Kentucky Fried Chicken, <laughs> but in the context of that, it is National Cancer Control Month. How relevant of a conversation this is! But uh, I really, really appreciate your time. Uh, I'm a friend of Julia Rowlands, as you know, and she speaks very highly of you. So, uh, by merit of that, it's an honor to have you on the show. Oh, thanks. Happy to be here. So let's talk a little bit about cancer control. It, it's not like a uh, like a public. It's not like a vernacular thing that people throw around when they're just like playing tennis or whatever. So can you talk to us a little bit about, I mean, maybe when you play tennis, I don't know, but can you talk to us a little bit about what is cancer control in population science and how is it? How does it relate down to the layperson eating Kentucky Fried Chicken? <laughs> well, 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 people hear a lot about cancer prevention, but uh, cancer control is a broader term that includes prevention because it also inc- includes uh, managing cancer once you have it things like managing symptoms and side effects, uh, but also um, uh, prevention of recurrence. Uh, So cancer control uh, includes everything from uh, smoking prevention uh, to cancer screening and early detection, like you were just talking about earlier, Uh, and also all all the uh, uh, habits you referred to, uh, diet, nutrition, physical activity. So it's it's a broad and diverse area, and it it really is, is our link uh, to public health in general, because so many of uh, the risk factors for cancers are risk factors for other diseases too. So when you're working in cancer control, you're also working oftentimes for a common goal of preventing heart disease and uh, a whole host of chronic diseases that are related to things like smoking or, or lack of physical activity. Yeah, and I was just reading all these things in the bio here, it, you it encompass a huge diverse portfolio how, how do they how do they all sort of come together at the end or, or like does it does each one sort of operate on its own and then report back because you're looking at a difference between you know susceptibility to cancer but that ties into behavior and health services and access to this and that and on top of that the age brackets because you know we focus on sort of the youth market so to speak and you know, most lung cancers in young adults are non-smokers, and, you know, there are women who get lung cancer that don't, don't smoke. Where where do you sort of draw the line in terms of understanding uh, the barriers and boundaries to having meaningful outcomes in what you're trying to achieve? 
Well, I mean, usually when people think of the National Cancer Institute and cancer research, you know, oftentimes they're thinking of, you know, treatment and drug development and uh, different strategies uh, for attacking cancer itself. And, and, and from a cancer controls perspective, you really step, step back and look at the entire context, the healthcare system, uh, healthcare policies, you know, healthcare reform, which was just passed. Uh, and so my role at the NCI is really to kind of connect kind of the traditional areas of focus at NCI with all of our collaborators and partners in public health. So as a result, we have a, a lot of collaborations in areas like obesity, uh, just to mention one <laughs> from your earlier discussion, uh, but also, uh, uh, you know, how, how do we leverage uh, collaboration between those attacking the cancer problem and those working on diabetes and cardiovascular disease and other chronic diseases, because uh, there's, a, there's a lot more that can, can be accomplished, you know, if we team up with folks working in a, lot, in a lot of different disease domains, particularly when we talk about some of these early upstream uh, risk factors. Dr. Quill, tell us, how does somebody, you know, with our young adult audience, and this speaks to all age ranges, really, how does somebody navigate each day? I mean, we were just talking earlier about how uh, we were reading something about how, say, multivitamins are now not good for you. There's so much that comes out every single day, this is good, this is not good, in terms of prevention, whether it's, you know, just a wide range of things. To the average person out there listening, how can they possibly wrap their head around this and sort through the information in terms of what they should adhere to in trying to find some answers? Yeah, that's, that's a real problem because people now with the Internet are just oftentimes feel inundated with information from different sources and, and the inconsistencies. Uh, you know, the one thing we always say is, is you've you got to pay attention to the source. So there's information from every kind of source. Some sound incredible, some uh, less so. Uh, and in a, in a way, what we, we need to do a better job is helping people navigate you know, the web, navigate all these different sources, and, and pay a lot more attention than a lot of people are used to in terms of the source of information and particularly the conflicts of interest that arise in, in sources of information. You know, what are, what are people selling? What are they marketing? Uh, and what, what's their agenda? What are their goals? And, and try to differentiate sources of information that are really trying to inform versus sources of information that are really trying to persuade, you know, with, with another goal in mind. And you also, you break down um, sort of health disparities in terms of looking at, say, African Americans as a group or Hispanics as a group, yet the young adult population um, with its sort of very unique set of circumstances is not looked at as a disparity. Why is that? Well, it's, it really should be because, I mean, we have so much evidence now of the gaps in care of people lost in transition. Uh, do, I, do I see a pediatrician? Do I see a, an adult internist? Uh, and so th th one of the biggest d disparities in terms of young adults is, is literally how much evidence we have to apply to the problem. And so we've had a number of reports, you know, indicating that there's a gap in terms of appropriate research focused on this age population, your listeners, and, uh, and, and also people trying to find the right specialized care, people who really understand the special problems of cancer in this age group. So what will it take? I mean, to to get the funding to be able to do this to, to do this research. Well, one of the, one of the things we're we're now trying out uh, in terms of the kind of data we're collecting uh, from NCI is first trying to identify 
and, and document better kind of the gaps in care delivery and quality of care. So that's from surveying patients, from looking at individuals' experiences, uh, because one of the things is that we, we've got to improve uh, the monitoring of the quality of care delivery. So we hear so many stories from people in your show uh, and, and other shows in terms of, uh, you know, these, these horror stories in terms of a mi uh, mistaken diagnosis or overlooking symptoms. And so we need to kind of increase the, the quality of the data we collect uh, about adolescents and young adults and cancer. And so we're talking to a number of different healthcare provider systems now about how we can use better use uh, on, on a larger massive scale uh, electronic medical records and data from healthcare systems uh, because so many of the rare cancers, it's, it's hard to launch the same kind of effort that we have in the more common cancers like breast and colon and prostate cancer. So we're really putting a lot of attention now in terms of you know, building and growing the national data infrastructure so that we can uh, better document uh, both care delivery and outcomes. And I have a, a question for you with regard to the position of the National Cancer Institute. I'm, I don't know the answer to this question, obviously. But, uh, you know, when we are looking at, you know, health care reform, putting taxes on beverages or, you know, trying to put the public health uh, above the need, you know, above like corporate, you know, when they're looking to get rid of Ronald, Ronald McDonald now or whatever, when something comes out, and I, I don't want to fixate on it, but just as a, as a euphemism like that, we're putting Kentucky Fried Chicken as a cause marketing incentive to help fund breast cancer research, does the government take a position on that, or is that just considered private industry and caveat emptor for consumers? No, we've we've had uh, you know oftentimes uh, quietly behind the scene a lot of interaction, sometimes uh, quietly, but sometimes publicly, with all sorts of industry sectors. I mean, uh, almost every week there's a uh, cancer research article that gets published that upsets somebody in private industry, whether it's somebody in the chemical industry or somebody in the food industry uh, and uh, of course we had the long history with the tobacco industry and sure. and look how long that took uh, to overcome a lot of those barriers and pass FDA regulatory authority so um, it, you know it's it's part of the nature of things that especially new scientific discoveries that point to exposures that cause cancer uh, are oftentimes going to upset or be or create a contentious relationship with one sector of the industry. So what, what we have to do is to, uh, you know, marshal our efforts to get the best accurate up-to-date evidence out to the public uh, so that they can weigh these choices in a sound way. Um, and and, and there have been terrific partners in the non-governmental sectors. If you look at the uh, Legacy Foundation's Truth Campaign, which was so successful sure. in adolescent tobacco use, I mean, that's an aggressive, assertive campaign uh, you'll probably never see the government do something uh, similar to that, but we absolutely collaborate with a lot of private organizations uh, who can take take on and challenge a lot of these strategies and that we see in the private sector that are inconsistent with public health. Yeah, and, and there's another group, I'm sure you're familiar with them, Breast Cancer Action in San Francisco. They were able to take on the um, the, the, the BGH issue in, in milk because like yogurt companies were using the you know the the pink lids to raise money for breast cancer but the the bovine growth hormone used to make the milk in the yogurt you know can increase your risk of breast cancer so we're in huge favor of that but i had a, a question for you about the uh, you know to the extent that 
the NCI can comment on this, the health care reform law that just passed, is there a position the NCI has taken as far as its hope that, you know, it will reduce, you know, the risk of late detection or improve access to quality care for, for the younger generations by extending COBRA or, um, you know, reducing the pre-existing conditions? Because obviously we deal a lot in the young adult sector with long-term pediatric survivors. All these children that are diagnosed at six, they survive, grow up, and then fall into this donut hole that is the young adult movement. Do you have a, a comment or a statement on the, the passage of the law? Well, sure. I, th- I think one of the things is there are some things in the law that are going to happen at a remarkably fast rate, and there's a lot of people uh, who are working hard to get them up. So as, as many folks know, uh, there's going to be the establishment of a new national high-risk pool uh, to provide health coverage um, that's you know, going to be ha- rolled out in June of this year. Uh, so, because the, the law said that you know, within 90 days after the passage of the law, there is going to be the creation of this this national high risk pool uh, for people who have not had insurance and have pre-existing conditions. Um, the other, the other, you know, a lot of the elements of the reform bill uh, are very relevant to people who have had cancer, and a lot of them didn't get much attention, uh, but includes you know coverage of preventive services. Uh, a number of initiatives to improve and monitor the quality of health care delivery. And actually, one of the elements is to create you know, a national health care quality improvement strategy, uh, which, is, which is really needed. And then a number of, number of efforts to better uh, coordinate care. And I think for people uh, who are, who've had cancer when they're young, you know, the kind of the, oftentimes the poor coordination of care between providers and, and health care organizations is something we constantly hear about, and, and there are a number of strategies in the bill to address that as well. Uh, just going back to the high-risk pool, what is that? In, does that just include those who've already had cancer, or does that include genetic proclivities? What, is it, what does the high-risk pool include? Well, it's, it, it, it's the, the, the strategy is to reduce premiums, and the um, people who, and, and one of the criteria for eligibility for the high-risk pool <clears throat> excuse me, is that those have been uninsured for at least six months. So uh, one of the criteria in the bill is is that people have not been able to get insurance because of a pre-existing condition. And then what it provides is in subsidies and then standardized rates for people to get into this high-risk pool. Now, that's a, a temporary thing because when 2014 rolls around, then uh, all the, the full law goes into effect in terms of preventing pre-existing conditions, you know, from people getting into uh, other insurance plans. But it's kind of an immediate stopgap measure so that we can get people in as well. And then also the fact that, um, you know, dependent coverage for uh, uh, adult children up to age 26, you know, being able to be covered by a parent's plan is going to bring in a lot of people as well because we know a lot of people in their 20s drop off of their parents' health plans and don't have insurance. So you have, let me just take it back again on very layman's terms here, very much so. You have a lofty position with, with, with the NCI. Uh, I don't know if you have children of your own, but if you had a, 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 a child or someone, a young adult close to you, uh, knowing what you know, doing what you do, uh, what, do you tell, what do you tell the young adult community or what do you tell your own child who's you know, somewhere in the 15 to 39 age group in terms of their health, wellness, uh, diseases like cancer, then health care reform going forward? Well, I, th- I think, A, uh, for, 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 th- for that group, 
and, and with cancer, with cancer experience A, things are going to get better. Uh, that is, there are a number of things in healthcare reform that are going to address some of the long-standing issues. Not everything, you know, it's not perfect and complete, but uh, but there there is going to be some some noticeable improvements and progress. Secondly, is is that uh, as as you've often said, uh, you know, people have got to be advocates for their own health, and uh, this this issue of you know getting a second opinion, uh, finding out who the experts are in your particular diagnosis. Uh, and you know, working with your family members uh, to not just take no for an answer or getting the runaround. Even even with healthcare reform, uh, everybody is still going to have to be their own best advocate. Uh, and I think that's that's a lesson that's that's learned every day by people diagnosed with cancer. Well, I think you know, I am so happy to have you on the show, and we could go on for hours. And clearly, there's no short supply of this tangible relevant topics to discuss but we do have to move on to melinda i really want to thank you for taking the time to be on the show to have the director of the division of cancer control of population sciences at the nci on this show um we're doing you a disservice so thank you very much <laughs> thanks matthew thanks lisa thanks, all right Jack. take care thanks good so luck much, be well thanks a lot dr okay. robert croyle from the national cancer institute all right, Jack, you heard what you said. We have to be our own advocates, which means do not text me the before and after photos of you eating two Big Macs. Why? <laughs> You're the only one that would care. I am the only one. No, I'm, all the people in the chat room don't really want you to die. What about like, my two buckets of chicken? All right. Well, if it's helping Coleman. Yeah. <laughs> and it's helping me, too. It's filling me up with nourishment so I could do my next half marathon. <clears throat> oh, all right. Exactly. Well, let's move on to our... Uh, our star of the evening. I've been here the whole time. <laughs> Melinda Henneberger is the editor-in-chief of PoliticsDaily.com, the author of If They Only Listen to Us, What Women Voters Want Politicians to Hear, and a columnist for the Catholic opinion journal Commonweal. Previously, she was a reporter for the New York Times, where she worked for 10 years as a Washington correspondent and as the Rome Bureau Chief. Henneberger has also written a weekly column for Newsweek and contributed to publications including the New York Times Magazine, GQ, Slate, and Reader's Digest. And she also has twins, as I learned when I spoke to her. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Melinda Henneberger. Melinda. Hello. Melinda, welcome. Hi there. That's the nicest intro I've ever had. Wow. <laughs> you're, 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 uh, am I hired? Can I, can I work for you? <laughs> I, I actually just learned something. You can learn something from about other people by talking to them. <laughs> thank you, Jack, very much. I, I Take Jack's mic away yeah, now. Again. Yeah, Jack, you have to leave yeah. here. Melinda, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited Thanks to have you on the show. Me. It was great Thanks to talk with you yesterday to talk, introduce you to our movement, what we're all about, and again, I'm, I, I knew of you. I've I read your columns, but when I saw you on Bill Maher uh, two weeks ago or so, you had just stated out there that you were a, a breast cancer survivor, and I was not aware of that. So I was like, oh, my God, we got to get on the show. <laughs> so I, I tracked you down. I stalked you. I hunted you, and we found you, and you're here. So I would really like just to start out with your story. What was it like to be in your early 40s and get diagnosed with breast cancer? Well, I was... Um you know, when you ask someone that question, you don't know, if, do they want the 30-second answer? <laughs> I'll start the Jeopardy uh, yeah. theme. <laughs> I was living in Italy at the time, and um, 
I had always been super vigilant because my mom had breast cancer, and she's still going strong and nearly 80. She probably wouldn't like me to say that, but anyway. Well, God bless um, her. At 80, you got to you got to tell people your age. Yeah. Good to be 80. <laughs> and especially after cancer. And when yeah. she had it, she was one of the first. Um, she had her surgery at the Mayo Clinic. And she was one of the first women who had um, reconstruction because a lot of women before that didn't have any reconstruction. So what year was that that she had her surgery with the reconstruction? Oh, golly. It was when I was in high school. Oh, wow. So that's, um, you know. So 1986. she would go yeah. around with this implant, and she would go to all these women's, you know, like study club, they called it, you know, or a little, or a book club, or all these different kinds of women's clubs, and she would carry around and this implant and say, you know, if you get cancer, you don't have to go around um, feeling that, you know, you're disfigured in some way, right. that you really have some options that you might not know about. She was a real pioneer for that, for yeah, reconstruction really at that was. time. Yeah, um, So I was always aware of it and always super vigilant, and in fact, when I moved to Italy... I, I used to go in and get, like, twice a year screenings, not just once a year, and get the ultrasound. And um, So I already had the name of the best breast guy in Italy, and I found a lump, and Mr. Best Breast Guy in Italy says, oh, niente, niente, that's nothing, you know, don't even, don't even, no need to biopsy. Well, as we all know, always, 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 always biopsy a palpable lump. But um, Mr. Big Deal told me it was niente, and so I, I went home, but I didn't forget about it. And I kept having these dreams about breast cancer. So I went to see another doctor, and he told me the same thing. And so I told my husband, I know you think I'm nuts, that's nothing new, but I'm going to fly back to the States, and if my doctor in D.C. tells me it's niente, then we're good. And instead, he did surgery the next day. Wow. And huh. we moved home. And, um, so how was it that there was such a turnaround from two doctors who said it was nothing to then coming to the U.S. and having surgery the next day? Well, it was that. They just, I, they just felt it and saw on, they did do ultrasound, and they said it was a cyst. Yeah. And... Whatever ultrasound they did here, the doctor said, this ain't no cyst. So he said I should be prepared that it didn't look good. Wow. And, and it didn't look good. And it didn't look good. <laughs> and so they got me in the next day. And what was wow. it a lumpectomy that you had, or what was the surgery and the treatment It was a lumpectomy, that? and I guess one of my takeaways from the whole experience was you also should never discount your gut. You know, when my gut was screaming at me in Italy that I wasn't well and that this this lump was something, I mean, you know, my subconscious was literally telling me while I was sleeping that I needed to, to continue to check it out. So I think if your gut tells you something, you should keep going until you find a doctor that tells you the same thing. Now, that's highly commendable <laughs> and, and un, unfortunately un, too uncommon. And we, we do everything we can to encourage people to be just the, the, the vigilant self-advocate that you clearly were capable of being. So congratulations. Why, thanks. 
And you were in just you were in your early forties when you yeah. had the yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you are now you you've done all this writing, all this journalism. You you've been all over the place. You're all this journalism stuff. All this crazy <laughs> journalism stuff. Like I'm some musician. I play all these keys on this instrument. <laughs> and uh, but I'm <laughs> this crazy mixed up stuff with the papers and the pens and whatever you do. But you are so entrenched and immersed and educated as to the obviously the politics of the day specifically with healthcare and what we spoke about yesterday was that we cater our audience to the population that I feel had the most to lose if the healthcare bill it, with all its faults you love it still had not passed so yeah. i'd love to hear your thoughts on you know on its as dr crow was saying it's uh, potential propensity to improve the lives of younger Americans. Yeah, and and I I was listening to him, and he hit on a lot of the things that I think are going to help us the most. I mean, as I was saying yesterday, the the truth is that we don't know a lot of the details about exactly how this is going to work, but we do know that it's over. It is over in terms of discrimination insurance companies discriminating against people who've had cancer or any other serious disease. And, yes, it's going to take them a minute to get um, that fully ramped up, but that's huge for us. I mean, it's huge for everybody because everybody's at risk of a serious disease like cancer. So I I just think, I mean, when, when people set up or, you know, should we take half a loaf, I just thought that was crazy talk. I mean, because if it were just that one thing, the spell would be revolutionary in the most fabulous way. Right. And when you add in some of the things the doctor was mentioning earlier, the preventive medical care that's going to be, you know, now, we can't afford not to do it. As a society that's getting older, we can't afford not to do that kind of prevention. Um, but now that's going to be paid for, which is going to mean that everybody's suddenly going to get that kind of care. Or the the slacker mandate is what it's called that he mentioned, where you can stay on your parents' insurance. Until right, exactly. Years old. That, too, is is amazing for people who might not, you know, when you're that age, you don't always think that, that you're vulnerable like all other human beings do to getting cancer or anything else. So I think all of those things are, are, are vast improvements. And the um, just something that sounds so simple, like revamping the records and making sure that doctors have uh, access to all your records. I mean, you know, most people end up schlepping all that around themselves. But this, for people who don't do that sort of thing, for people who, who for whatever reason, um, maybe they're too sick to be totally on top of it. You know, that's, that is going to improve care a ton. So I'm, I couldn't be more hopeful, even though, you know, I'm sure there will be <laughs> problems with it too. And, I, I mean, there have already been reports, hey, this obviously isn't working. So-and-so called yesterday and he's still being locked out with a pre-existing condition. Well, you know, give it a minute. Yeah, it's going to be – I think you're I think you're right. I mean, I mean – Melinda, so much of this is going to be time will tell, and it's so complicated. I, I feel like no matter how much I read about this health care bill, there's always something else 
that I read about again that I have to go back and read over 17 times and still can't quite wrap my brain around it. Um, But some of the basic tenets, if if you take the flip side position, of course, for people who are against health care, and we'll take a broader view here than just the young adult community with cancer, for those who are over 200000 or 250000 and in the New York area, or I'm sure the D.C. area, as a household income, a lot of people think that ain't so rich if you have some kids, you know, mm-hmm. that, they, that they are paying into the system more than anybody else, and they're paying for the uninsured. I mean, uh, you know, and not the same way that everybody's supposed to be benefiting from Social Security or Medicare, which, you know, we'll have to see if... Our generation even does benefit from Social Security, but you know that that it's that it's more you know the folks who make more money are sort of paying for um, for a lot of other people, or even folks who say should young adults be covered until they're tw- if they're unmarried up until 26, is this going to keep them from being from getting out there and being self-reliant and getting a job? I mean, I know right now it's tough with the recession, but you know there's a lot of folks who feel resentful and just sort of the basic tenets of um, the market forces, you know, at play. So what would you what would you say to all of that? Well, I'm always very um, curious about these, how much resentment does drive American politics and what a force that is. It's so, when I say curious, I think it's so odd that we're so jealous of the poor instead of of the rich. I mean, you know, we're so um, insistent that that nobody get anything they didn't fully deserve. And yet we look at what the poor doesn't deserve we, we more than we look at the people who just, um, you know, wrecked our economy on Wall Street and in the financial markets. So uh, I that is a, um, an impulse that I have never really understood. But I think that the, the bottom line is, even if you have no speck of care for your fellow humans, you should still like this bill because it's going to make us healthier, thus more productive as a country. Again, with the population aging, we're all going to need to be healthy. You know, a lot of us, uh, like myself, with you know, I have... 14-year-old twins, I'm never going to be able to retire. <laughs> right. So I thanks, better for the, stay thanks for I the vote uh, of confidence here. Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know. <laughs> that's, that's not an option. And um, the and we're paying for these people anyway. You know, it's, it's not just a bumper sticker to say that we're paying for them in the ER. I don't understand why we would prefer to pay so inefficiently instead of helping the economy, helping um, the population get healthier, and um, doing something that will just make us stronger as a country. And for somebody who's entrenched in politics as you are, how much actual repeal and rewrite, as they're calling it, do you think the Republicans are actually going to pursue or achieve? Zero and zero. Um, that's the right answer. That's the right answer. That's absolutely impossible, and they know that. It's, yeah. That is just a fundraising technique. Yeah. I mean, it. well, if there were another president, the president would have to sign such a bill. So as long as Obama's in the White House, they're well aware that the chance of that occurring is nil. So un- at least until 2012, and and beyond, I mean, it will be too late. I think that the real chance for this being repealed and turned back is, is 
nothing. I think that that's just people who think that's a, a correctly believe it's a way to raise the money. Do you think it's fair to compare this to the civil rights bill? I hear it talked about all the time on all the, the pundit shows that how you know it wasn't a perfect bill when it was passed and everyone was horribly opposed to it, and now today we can't imagine ever not having it. Do you think in 10 years we'll, we'll be, or 15 years we'll be in a similar place? I hope so, but I, I mean, I don't see, I think that the flaws that, that have, that I've really seen are that not enough is being done on the cost side, and that really can be fixed. But those are not the worst flaws in the world. I mean, I am surprised when people say, argue, like you said, you saw me on Bill Maher the other night. You know, the guy who was on with me, Steve Moore, was arguing, well, it might save lives, but it's going to cost more. (laughs) Really? (laughs) I mean, honest, that's exactly what he said. So I'm not really following that argument. (laughs) No, I don't want to be on the other side of that argument, for sure, for sure. But, um... Could you help me understand something? Because, you know, there's so, it just seems to be so much mixed messages. There's no consistency uh, from the opposition. Do you, is it fair to say, or am I just making this up? Tell me, put me in my place. The majority of people who are opposed to this don't know why they're opposed to it and are actually going to want to benefit from it. I think there are a lot of different reasons. I'm sure that people who oppose it are not monolithic. And I think that some of them who we've seen interviewed and I've had reporters interview members of the Tea Party movement, for example, who are angry for lots and lots of reasons that have very little to do with health care. So I think some people are just plain old mad. Some of it, sad to say, is racial. Some of it's about hating Obama, and if he does it, it must be bad. And then there are people who don't want to pay for it. I think those right. are the main groups. Right. Well, it's going to be the people that make more than a quarter million dollars a year will be paying for it, correct? Yes. So of course, rich people don't want to spend their money. That's why they're rich. <laughs> well, as as long as now, they keep. Now, who had two ice? when I used to be a waitress. I remember. <laughs> you can afford to pick that up. <laughs> Although it is interesting, and I, I correct me if I'm wrong here, that the, I guess you can have a uh, a subsidy to buy insurance if you earn up to $88,000 a year. and But if you're a single person making $200,000 a year, then you're taxed more. That, that, that just struck me as not a very wide gap between going from subsidy to... to being taxed more, which I thought was interesting, but yeah, well, the subs you can make a fair it's true a fair amount and and still qualify for the subsidy, so when people say when opponents say the middle class, of course, there's a flexible you know there's some give and take in what we consider middle class, but yeah. you know people have to be pretty well off to to have to pay in i mean middle class. The struggling middle class will get a subsidy, and and far and away the people you see marching in the streets. And again, I never thought I'd see people taking to the streets to defend the insurance companies they love. Oh my God! <laughs> um, those people will I I from 
from what they say in interviews, I mean, I'm thinking those people are going to be getting subsidies. So I think that a lot of this opposition is going to melt away when people see that it's, you know, that all the scare tactics were just that and that there's a lot to like about the bill. I have a question. Uh-oh. And I don't know if President Uh-oh. Obama has addressed this in any of his speeches, but if I like what I have, am I allowed to keep it? <laughs> and then the second question is, what are the chances of the government getting their filthy hands off of Medicare and Medicaid <laughs> and that, just staying out of it? I think that summed up the entire, like that old guy holding up the sign, get your damn dirty ape hands off my Medicare. No, get your government Gov- hands yeah. off my Medicare. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. But that was some of my question. The majority of people, is it fair to say, and I, I don't know the answers to these questions, that, but I, I do believe when Bill Maher says that something like most people vote against their interests because their interests are not, their interests differ from their interests. I don't think that vo- voting against your interests is necessarily a bad thing. I mean, a colleague of mine, Walter Shapiro, wrote, um, a story after after the book came out, What's Wrong with Kansas? He wrote a piece called What's Wrong with the Upper West Side uh, that was saying, you know, people in the Upper West Side of Manhattan vote against their interests, too. They're rich, and yet they believe in social programs. What's wrong with them? Right, right, right. You know, so, <laughs> so voting against your narrowly defined economic interests can... Uh, can be something I would wholeheartedly support. <laughs> What's your prediction for uh, for midterm elections? Oh, golly, no one really knows is the truth. I mean, of course, today it, it looks very grim for the Democrats, but and I think probably it is true that not um, enough time will have gone by for people to see what a, a good bill, in my view at least, the health care reform is. So I'm not sure that they'll get much much um, help on that. But a lot of it depends on what's happening with jobs, I think, at the time. I think that if unemployment has gone down, that'll, that will be a help, obviously. So it really depends a lot on what shape the economy is in at the time. Did uh, We won't. You know, all the polling now is pretty meaningless. We'll, we'll know in the fall. Right, right. Um, Bart Stupak stepping down uh, post, do you think, because of being such a polarizing figure uh, right. in this in this health care debate? Well, you know, um, I'm a pro-life Democrat. Uh, yeah. I came out a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and came out as I'm, such within the Democrat, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. That, that's just, yeah, we're, we're just, we're, we're chuckling at your at your use of the term, you came out yeah. as such. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, it's not a super popular thing to be. Um, so I always uh, had a lot of respect for Bart Stupak. Mm-hmm. But I, I really, I mean, he was under so much pressure from all sides because I, um, there was never any abortion funding in the bill, ever. Uh, so I, I, had a hard time following why, for example, the bishops kept insisting that there was. And it was like, well, will you double, triple, pinky swear that there's no abortion funding in the bill? And I, even having the respect that I've always had for Bart Stupak, I um, 
David Gibson, who works on our staff, did a brilliant piece that just went point by point and showed that the Senate bill was, in fact, even more pro-life in many ways than the House bill in that um, there was so much more money for uh, adoption, for helping pregnant women. There was, I mean, if you look at pro-life in a holistic way, um, it, it was just the better bill, and so it, it made it mm, difficult for me to understand what the, even as a pro-life person, what the problem was with the bill. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people questioned the motives of, you know, have some people in this movement gotten so cozy with their Republican, um, you know, colleagues on this one issue that it's become more partisan than it was ever about that issue. I wouldn't like to think that, but I didn't have, obviously didn't have a problem with Bill. He, though, um, you know, he's gotten death threats. He's had people scream baby killer on the uh, floor of the House of Representatives. His, uh, you know, his party's furious at him because he almost took down health care, even though he came through for them in the end. Um, he was already in, uh, in a difficult position as a moderate. And I, I, I assume he's resigning because he um, was definitely going to have a tough race. He, yeah. You know, it was just from all sides. I think his his former allies uh, in the pro-life movement were furious at him. So I I think for, you know he's getting he said from every he place. Was, yeah. He said he was stepping down. He literally said he was stepping down to spend more time with his family. And you know he's had a tough time too. I mean he had a a grown child who committed suicide. I mean you know he's had a lot of um, a lot of challenges. Yeah. But I was disappointed in the fin- in him in the final days of health care, not only because I couldn't comprehend why he was sticking to this line that abortion funding was in the bill when it wasn't, but because he, he made some comments near the end of the debate that really made me think he's under a lot of pressure and, and you know, sort of, he, one of the things he said late in the debate was uh, that there were unnamed Democratic leaders who were for the bill because they said outright that abortion was cheaper than health care, and that's why they wanted that funding in the bill. Well, if if anybody said any such thing, I mean, he would be honor-bound to name that person, and instead he immediately started walking it back. Yeah, yeah. So Not good. he said, Not well, good it wasn't leaders, it was just people, you know, it was just people in the party and... You know, let's just say he never named names, and I, I have serious doubts about whether any anybody said any such thing. Well, I mean, again, That's like maybe more than an answer. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's, it's really like one of those you, you bad, win, but. you lose, you win, you lose. Um, yeah. But you know, this is clearly a conversation that is not going away anytime soon, and I can tell you, like we spoke with yesterday. The young adult cancer movement is very fired up because we, I feel, and I've heard this from from the troops in the trenches, we are going to benefit from this, whether it's now or in three years from now or whatever. And if someone's going to come back to us and say, sorry, we're taking away 
you know, the opportunity you have to not die from cancer as much, you know, let them try to do that. <laughs> so we're, we're here, and we're standing as, as one. I know that we, we, we issued a statement publicly, Live Strong issued a statement publicly. The CEO is a friend of mine, and he is a three-time young adult cancer survivor. Even Komen and the American Cancer Society took a stand, and we were all involved leading up to the bill, and we were all in favor of it, and we're all very happy it passed. So you're looking at the national cancer movement, which is millions and millions of people, are, are and, and the leaders of that movement in this country in favor of this. So, And the same with the diabetes groups and the American Heart Association, the American Lung Association. They're all put out like we're glad this happened. So, like I said, we can talk about this for hours. I, would, I can't wait to have you back on the show in, in a couple of months to see, like, what else ridiculous has happened between now and then. <laughs> Okay. But I'm, I'm really, really glad that you were able to make the time, and we appreciate it. And um, we're pleasure. out of time, but I, I, good luck with everything. I, like I said, Thanks you so and me much. drinks when I'm in D.C. Okay, deal. Take <laughs> care, All right. guys. Thank you. Thanks Melinda Henneberger, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us. Fantastic. Good stuff. Fantastic. I was so excited to have her on the show tonight. Well, she was great, already, Bill Maher. You've already lined up drinks. Yeah, she's a rock star. No, you went right. You went. You, you no, bypassed. But, Jack brought up your anniversary. Yes. You're already out of the bromance, and you're on to drinks yes. with Melinda. Oh, she's fantastic. I've been reading her column. They just politicsdaily.com with her. Is her? She's the editor in chief. They just relaunched their site. It looks fantastic. It does look good. And she writes some really incredible stuff. It's it's amazing. So, uh, a great show uh, for an, a never-ending topic, um, and we're we're hoping for for some more civil discourse. In the chat room from people that type in all capital letters, but I think our group handled it with a plum. I think that's one of our former presidents, right? <laughs> Are they screaming at us? No, there was some guy in the chat room that was screaming in all caps and like 92-point font. So I think we simmered him down, and he's, he, he's, uh, he's now typing in lowercase. So we're very happy. But isn't it great to live in a country where you can voice your opinion? It is great, but as long as you can be civil, you know, throwing... Eggs at politicians, and especially at a at a room full of young adult cancer survivors who have pre-existing conditions. Yeah, I know, I know. We're going to walk into the OMG summit and have 400 people with pre-existing conditions. Well, typing in all caps isn't the worst offense. No, if certainly that, if not. That's the, if, that, if that's the the most that we're, you know, the hand that we're dealt, right? We can we can handle all caps. I think at the end of the day, everyone agrees. Everyone who supports the bill and everyone who's on the fence about the bill agrees that it's not perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect. Nothing is perfect at version 1.0, so get over that and just accept the fact that this is progress. This is where change starts. I have renewed faith in Barack Obama as a registered Democrat that he he he, he grabbed the cojones and he's doing the stuff he said he was going to do. So um, I think there's actually sorry to interrupt you there, Matt. But there was you know there was a quote that struck me in the latest uh, Time magazine uh, piece, actually the cover story on healthcare, from uh, Karen Pollitz, director of Georgetown University's Health Policy Institute, and sort of sums it up to me in a bit. She says, "Of course we'll fuss with it, the healthcare bill, but we'll have something to fuss with as opposed to nothing." So we've got years ahead of us. Uh, we've got lots of fallout. Yes, it is a 2,400-page bill. It's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. But it's got, it got over the hump. Got over the hump. We've got the seniors have donut holes. Yes. We've got gaps. We potentially have rising premiums. But, you know, 
Things have to get paid for, so yeah. we'll see. It's, 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 and I said this on my face. I'm like, I don't make more than a quarter million dollars a year. I don't make anywhere near that. But if I was somebody who earned that much money, and at least from where I are, that's a lot of money from where I am, I feel that I'd be willing to pay more taxes if it meant less people were had a propensity to die from something they didn't need to. Yeah. You no. have to have two kids, though. Don't forget your expenses. Yeah. Are I, I'm worth negative two hundred fifty thousand dollars now. But two are on the way. I your family if, size will double. If it sums up as if if we could sum it up as this, and we got to close the show, no one should die needlessly simply because they lack insurance. Right. So with that said, with fantastic. that said, somebody wrote in the chat room in flaming bold caps. I love you, Jack. Which really means the show now has to come Take to a guess. Uh, guess, uh, who, guess who that was? Oh, it's got to come Silver. to an end. All right, folks. Now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray! I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. <laughs> That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks, that's tonight's show. I hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, Ava Grizel, Dr. Robert Coyle from the National Cancer Institute, and Melinda Henneberger from PoliticsDaily.com. In our studio, Amanda Freeman, Dr. Leonard Sender, his daughter Hannah Sender, next week's show... Stupid Sarcoma. In our survivor spotlight, Jason Malott, young adult survivor of undifferentiated soft tissue sarcoma and regional chair for I2Y Florida. Matthew Alsante is the executive director of the Sarcoma Foundation of America. And Dr. C. Parker Gibbs is an associate professor of orthopedic oncology at the University of Florida College of Medicine. If you've missed any of our previous shows, check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com or just search for Stupid Cancer on the iTunes store for our podcasts. Remember, folks, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here next week live from the chemo deck. Jack Buffard, Lisa Bernhardt, Amanda Freeman, Captain Stupid, and I wish you all a great week. Go to bed, Yosef Eliezra. Bocker out. On a friendly show.